different kinds of people failing in different ways, we should, as Christians, as professing Christians, for sure, but even as unbelievers, if you know an unbeliever, we have all failed Jesus in one of the ways that these people that I just mentioned failed him. We might take warning from the passage that I'm going to read for you today, but I think in the end we can also take great encouragement because the grace and wrath of God, the blessing and judgment of God is emphasized in the lives of those who betray His Son. You've betrayed Jesus, so have I. That's not the end of the story. And that's where the grace or wrath of God is revealed to us. Today we're going to focus on two of these groups. The priest, that, that ruling body who is supposed to provide Jesus justice. And we're going to also look at Peter. Mark 14, I'll start reading in verse 53 and we'll go to uh, verse 72. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with hands, and uh, in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it, what is it that these men are testifying against you? And he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fist and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Well, the first group of people that failed Jesus in this episode is obviously the high priest, the priest, the people who were supposed to provide justice for him. There's a little bit of history here with uh, the priest that you need to know about. Um, it, it used to be that the priests were appointed for life, and uh, you would have a consistency of, of 
spiritual blessing for the people. The Romans came in and they said, well, we really don't like the priests having that much power. So what we're going to do is we're going to change the priests and uh, periodically. And so the guy that was the high priest at this council was the guy by the name of Caiaphas. He was a guy that was part of a political family because the priestly position was not a spiritual position at that point. It was a political position. And it just happened to be that he was the high priest at that, uh, that year, and he oversaw the trial that Jesus went before. The thing about Caiaphas, the high priest, is that he was a Sadducee. The Sadducee, Sadducees were religious kind of people, but they were more political kind of people. They were wealthy people. Uh, they cared more, though, for the position they had in society. They liked their connection to Rome and power and politics. They liked Greek culture. They liked a lot of things that the true believers of God would not have gone along with. In terms of theology, the Sadducees, they didn't even believe in an afterlife the existence of a spiritual world. So so who are these guys? Why are they the priests if they don't even believe in the God of the Bible or the Bible or spiritual things? They're failures. The biggest fear this, these priests had was losing their power to the Romans. That's what Caiaphas himself said in John 11 and verse 47. They're going to send Jesus to Pilate because they don't have the authority to, re- to uh, execute Jesus themselves. And Pilate even realizes that the only thing they have against Jesus is that they're envious of him and his popularity. So as we go through this text, they led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests. They were kind of, it, it was the middle of the night, so they were all kind of gathering people together. It took them a while, so they had Jesus kind of just sitting there. He was talking to Annas, who was the high priest, while all these different people who were a part of the Sanhedrin, the, the council, were gathered together. Peter followed at a distance in verse 54. Actually, the Gospel of John says that he was there with another disciple who gained him access into the courtyard of the high priest. He was sitting there with the others, warming himself at the fire. So, so far, so good for Peter. He's coming close. But then we transition and and focus on, in verse 55, the chief priests. They're having this council. The thing about this trial is that it's illegal. It was illegal for them to have a trial at night. They, They shouldn't have been doing it. They arranged it in such a way that it probably looked okay to everybody because they had the trial at night, but they didn't really give a verdict until probably after 6 o'clock, which they said, okay, well, it's morning now. I guess everything is good. They didn't care about justice. They cared about having a pretense of justice, like making it look like they were concerned about justice, making it look like they were concerned about blasphemy, but they weren't. They just wanted to kill Jesus. They looked for witnesses, it says. Uh, They couldn't find any. So they settled for false witnesses. I think it's interesting. It's like, well, we don't have any witnesses. Let's find some false witnesses. Uh, Again, all they care about is killing Jesus. But even these false witnesses, they can't even lie lie correctly. Their testimony was not consistent. Verse 57, they began to give false testimony saying, uh, we heard him say, I'll destroy the temple made with hands, and in three days I'll build another. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. Because they're lying and they haven't had time 
to get their lies all correct. So there's just this farce, this pretense of justice, but it was completely unjust. What's interesting about this is that through most of the trial, Jesus is silent. In fact, if Jesus had never said anything, he probably wouldn't have been executed because they wouldn't have had any evidence against him. Jesus knows, though, that it's the plan of God that he go to the cross. And so every once in a while, Jesus will say something. He'll answer one of their questions, um, kind of just to keep the trial going, because without him, they would, uh, they would have botched the whole thing. We see there that they demand that he answer. Verse 61, he kept silent, did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? That's also illegal. In the court system back then, you couldn't force a defendant to defend himself. You had to bring other witnesses to prove that he was wrong. So another illegal aspect to their trial there. He says, do you not answer? Are you the Christ? And Jesus finally said, I am. And that was all they needed. In verse 63, toward their close, the high priest says, what further need do we have of witnesses? You heard the blasphemy as if they were concerned about blasphemy. What lesson do we learn about these priests? They put Christ on trial. They demand that He defend Himself. They weren't concerned that He was might be a false messiah. I mean, it might be kind of easy to sympathize with them because we know all kinds of people who haven't heard about Jesus and it's like, well, what do they hear when they hear about Jesus? What if somebody came along today and said, I'm the son of God, you know, you need to believe in me. We would all be like, yeah, I don't think so. Um, So what was different with them? Well, the first thing that's different is they should have been expecting the Messiah, right? Um, They should have been looking for him, but they didn't believe in him. Um... He gave them proofs. He was who he claimed to be. Now today it's much different. We're looking for a Messiah, but we know that the manner in which he comes, it's going to be in the clouds. It's going to be pretty obvious. So the the guy coming along down the street, preaching on the corner, if he claims to be Jesus, uh, probably he's being controlled by a spirit other than the Holy Spirit. So it was a little different back then. We don't need to have any sympathy for them. They weren't even looking for the Messiah. They were really looking for reasons to execute him. But they wanted it to be as plausible as possible. These priests are like the people who kind of show an interest. They pretend to be interested in Jesus. But then they, they act in the end. They pretend like he, he hasn't done enough to prove himself to them. It's like, oh man, I really would believe in Jesus if only he would prove himself to me. Why doesn't he prove himself to me? I just can't in good conscience believe in Jesus. Yeah, you know, those are just words. They don't really care. Because if they really cared, they'd really seek Him. And if they really sought Him, God would open their hearts with the Holy Spirit and cause them to believe. These priests and elders were failure. They failed to provide justice. They failed to be spiritual leaders for people. And in the end, they ended up blaspheming themselves. In the end, they were shouting, Crucify Him! We have no king but Caesar! They even themselves denied that God was their king in the end. They didn't care about blasphemy or theology or anything as long as in the end Jesus was killed. Most of these priests died in their sin, but not all. 
presumably some of the priests that we see here in Mark 14, we also find in Acts 6 and verse 7 where we read, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. These priests who had probably failed, been a part of the group that failed Jesus before, could have gone the way the other priests to face the wrath of God but at least these priests in Acts 6 and verse 7 changed. They repented. They followed Christ, became obedient to the faith. Which proves again that how you fail is not nearly as important as what you do after you fail. And then, of course, we have Peter. All the time that this trial is going on, Peter is out there in the courtyard, verse 66. He's below, and one of the servants of the high priest came to him. Now, before we go there, actually, we need to know a little bit about Peter. I'm sure you know a bit about him. He was a man of ambition, but he was also a man of great contrast. He was eager to leave his fishing boat and follow Jesus. He was willing to walk on water, but very quickly began to sink. He was quick to declare that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, but then very quick to try to prevent him from going to the cross. He's the guy that's quick to say what everybody else is thinking, even if what he says sounds really ridiculous. He was insightful and ignorant, fervent and dull, bold and cowardly from one minute to the next. That's just who Peter is. Of course, he grows after this event, but that's who he is in the Gospels. And in verse 66, he's there. This guy that had just stood between Jesus and hundreds of soldiers with a sword, he comes up to this servant girl and he is cowering. Verse 67, seeing Peter warming himself, this girl looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. These people have no authority. What's a servant girl going to do to him? Why tell such a silly lie? If he had told the truth there, it might have been done. But she knows that he's lying. And so it continues in verse 69. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. We think of three denials, but actually there's a whole group there. He just denies three times uh, to this whole group. Again, he denied it. Verse 70. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you're one of them for you're a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you're talking about. So think about that. He was so adamant that he did not want to have anything to do with Jesus in that moment that he was saying, you know, may God send me to hell if I have anything to do with this Jesus guy. I don't know him. Leave me alone. Verse 72, immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And he remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he began to weep. This led to some of the most horrific days of Peter's life. While Jesus was dying, Peter was weeping. I can't imagine that he ate very much or slept very much over the next couple of days. What would you do if you had just made the most colossal mistake of your life? And yet again, failure 
doesn't need to define us. Rather, what happens next does. Peter went out and wept bitterly, but his weeping was, an, was evidence of remorse. Judas showed remorse too, but it wasn't a remorse that led to repentance. Peter had this true remorse followed by repentance. And yet, Peter, even at that point, couldn't ever imagine being used by God again. He must have thought that he'd forfeited any special place in God's kingdom or church. And yet in Acts 2, we see him preaching boldly. In John 21, Jesus comes and encourages him and says, hey, take care of my, take care of my sheep, take care of my people. And he teaches us, he gives us a lesson to learn. Peter is the person who trusts Christ, but puts Christ to the side when it's inconvenient for him to associate with Jesus. Peter's the one who boldly declares, if I were in such and such a place, I would stand for Christ and I would, I would live for Christ. And yet when there's an opportunity for him to share Christ, he waffles, he hides his Bible, he doesn't mention his faith. Maybe it's his friends that a group of friends that he's, it's not his Christian friends, it's his other group of friends. And he, he, they know he's a Christian, but he doesn't really want them to think that he's weird. And so I'm not, not going to mention Jesus. And if they bring it up, I'll kind of laugh it off. After all, you don't want to lose your friends, right? As if God couldn't replace them and give them, give you better friends. You might even rationalize, but if I lose my friends and they won't have any Christian in their group that could influence them. But if you won't share Christ in the first place, what kind of influence is there? Yeah, I think we all know what it's like to be Peter. The good news is that God can still use people like Peter. Those failures I mentioned in the introduction were committed by people in the Bible who were considered to be the most faithful followers of God. And as we tell the story of Jesus' death, each of us can associate with one of the groups of people that failed Him. And again, yet again, how they failed is not nearly as important to what happened next. Judas's disbelief, which led to betrayal, ended up with him committing suicide. That's not the way we want to go after we fail. The priests in the Sanhedrin, their disbelief led to the denial of the Messiah. Most of them are burning in hell today because... Their failures, but some believe. Maybe we were those deniers of Jesus originally, but we can still be the some who believe. And Peter, his belief led to betrayal or gave way to betrayal, but it ended up with remorse, repentance, and restoration. And I don't care where you failed, none of you have failed any worse than Peter failed. And God used him in amazing ways after his failure. The reason our failure need not be the end is that our failure is central to the story of the cross. Christ came to die for sinners while we were yet sinners. While denying Jesus is bad, there's a greater tragedy. What do you do after you've betrayed Him? Do you wallow in self-pity like Judas? Do you not deny any wrongdoing like the priest? Or are you remorseful and repentant like Peter? A man went to the bank to deposit money into his son's account because he knew that his son had a gambling problem. And he knew that that very night his son would be out gambling away the money 
that would be covered by the deposit he put in the bank. The next morning, the son woke up. He would gambled away his last dime. But then he looked at his bank account and saw that it was full. When he discovered that, he felt so ashamed. He didn't want to accept his father's money. But it was his father's money. The, the reason his father's money was there was because of the gambling problem in the first place. To wallow in self-pity or refuse forgiveness for failure is that son. You say, well, I can't accept the money because I caused the debt. And the father says, your debt was the very reason I deposited the money. You say, I can't accept God's grace because I failed in this way and I consistently fail in this way. Your failure is the very reason you need the grace of God through Christ. Who you are at your weakest moment, that is who you are. You truly are who you are at your weakest moment when you fail. We need to own, we need to own that. And we need to let it lead us to repentance, remorse, confession. Actually, let's switch the order. Remorse, confession, repentance. That's the way I should have said it. Because your weakest moment does not have to dictate how you live from that point on. No more than in Peter, didn't let, Peter did not let his failure dictate how he lived from that point on. And that is the forgiveness we find in Jesus Christ. I was asked to give you a couple of questions for discussion. So if you want to write those down, I will give you a second to be ready for that. I was trying to think through some really good questions for you. The problem with questions like these is it's, it's really hard to be completely honest because you're going to be in a circle of your friends and uh, you're going to be talking about these things, and, and you failed in ways that you don't want your friends to know about. So what do you do? What do you say? Well, that didn't stop me from giving you this first question. How have I denied or betrayed Christ? The more honest you are in answering that question, if not in your group of friends, but with yourself, with your closest friends before God, the more honest you are, the greater the result. I mean, you could sit there in your groups and say, oh, I remember one time I was at church and I didn't like the song and so I didn't sing and, you know, I guess I betrayed Christ there. No, um, we've all done much worse than that. Um, if, if that's the worst you've done in betraying Christ, I've done much worse. Um, however specific you get, that's up to you, but the result that you get out of it as you own up to your failures, um, it depends how deep you go with that question. And the other question after that is, how do I move on from that? What are my failures? How do I move on from that according to the grace of God that we find in Jesus Christ? Let me pray for you here. And that, then that's all I got. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that the examples in the Bible 
are not all the pristine examples of Jesus and Daniel. We're grateful for those guys too, for Jesus who is the Son of God especially, who lived to give us an example of, of perfect obedience. But even for Daniel, uh, because we know that we can overcome. But Lord, most of us do have failures that we could have written down and mentioned. And I'm, so I'm thankful for the other Bible characters who show us what it's like to love you, to fail you, to find forgiveness in you, and then be used by you. So Lord, I pray that whatever failures we have among us today, that you would give us the grace to be repentant in our hearts, to, to confess our sins, to not wallow in them, to not hide them, but Father, to move on from them. Because that's the reason Jesus died while we were yet sinners. Amen.